All right, everybody. Uh, just so you remember, Trey, I am apparently Hillsborough Pediatric Dentistry 2. Uh, the uh, text for today is 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 through 10. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God for all of you and mention you in our prayers, constantly remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, beloved by God, that he has chosen you because your message of the gospel came to you, not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction just as you know what kinds of persons we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and the Lord, for in spite of persecution you received the word with joy inspired by the Holy Spirit, so that you will become an example to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord sounded forth to you, uh, not only there, but in every place your faith of God has become known, so that we have no need to speak about it. For the people of those regions report to us about what kind of welcome we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living God and a true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath that is coming. Uh, so basically, you know, I went back over all the old sermons at Resurrection Church and we've come perilously close to having done the whole New Testament over the course of our time here, uh, and once you have a, a, a for me a James, you know, a, a set of sermons, and then Revelation, there's not a lot of like spare place where it's not likely that you would go. So Thessalonians, it is. Um, no, I mean more than that. Uh, this is a text or set of texts that, to me, get to a question that um, is hugely significant for us and not only our current context, but to me is one of the most significant questions uh, for how Christians live in a world where there are multiple kinds of demands on them. One of the things that defines uh, you know, ancient existence, but certainly modern existence, is that we all have all kinds of groups, um, uh, organizations, uh, places, uh, elements of our community to whom we feel we owe some affinity or some allegiance. Um, If you think about what it means to be a human being, one of the most crucial elements of it, I think that we all experience is we are all kind of trying to define who we are and how we relate to others in the world through this framework of asking the question to ourselves, to whom do I belong? And if I understand to whom I belong, I also understand what kinds of obligations I have, what kinds of duties that I have, what kinds of things are placed on me uh, in terms of my ethics, in terms of my relationships to other folk. First Thessalonians is one of those primary texts in the Bible, and I think one of the most interesting texts in the Bible, for directly posing the question of, to whom do I belong? What are the obligations that I have, both to the kingdom of God and to other kingdoms? It's one of the earliest texts in the New Testament. Maybe it's the first, depending on who you listen to. It's an interesting text by Paul because it's, uh, you know, less highly theologically systematic than some of his later work that's obsessing about questions like 
what's the relationship between law and grace, what's the nature of justification, but in avoiding some of those, uh, you know, not arcane, but technical theological questions, it gets to the very core of what it means to be a Christian. And it does so, I think, in the reading I'm going to give for the uh, first and second letter, independent of the specific things in it, is that Paul is telling the audience in Thessalonica that they have to choose. That they have to choose between different visions of or understandings of who or to what they belong. There's a bunch of other things tied up in this letter. You know, imitation of spiritual practice is a big theme in both uh, praising the people in Thessalonica for what they've done well, uh, important in, 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 the, in the two letters. But the basic question, the thing that we're going to hone in on here is this question of belonging and obligation. So according to Acts 17, Paul went there uh, on his second missionary journey. And, you know, to do the kind of due diligence we always do, Thessalonica was kind of a big deal. It was an important trade route for uh, Macedonia. It was a, as a crucial uh, trading point for the Roman world. And one of the things we'll see in the context of this letter that's interesting is there's a ton of talk about persecution. You know, even right off the bat, there's a, a, a talk about persecution that is quite direct. Now, here's the thing. The historical evidence of this persecution is kind of sketchy. So we don't know, uh, we don't have a full understanding of, of, of its scope. Uh, there's some theories that the uh, treatment of persecution here was drawn from um, accounts or texts that were uh, not necessarily directly reflective of what went on, uh, that were uh, you know, kind of more spiritual or allegorical in nature. But we know, regardless of what the degree, intensity, and presence of the persecution looked like historically, that the letter is answering this one uh, very simple question. And the question is, uh, in the context of Thessalonica, there were two powerful or important religious powers. The first was there was a well-established Jewish community that had been there for a long, long, long time. The synagogue played a really important role in, uh, in the life and the kind of religious context of the town. And we know that some folks converted from that uh, local uh, uh, synagogue to Christianity, and there was a big question um, uh, about uh, you know being upset with the folks who were no longer aligned with the religious practices of the synagogue, and so there was social conflict because you know like in the modern day, but in a way that's much more intense than we can understand. You're tied to your religious family, defined most of your social possibilities, and it defined a lot of your economic and other kinds of possibilities. So it would have been a big deal that there was a fight within this synagogue where some people wanted to uphold the. Uh, you know, classic vision of uh, religious practice, and other people said, hey, we kind of like this new thread, so we're going to follow it. So we know this population is facing this problem about how to deal with uh, their, uh, the, their, your, their friends and family members and community members who used to sit beside them in the synagogue who now were quite angry at them. The second one, and, you know, this is probably uh, right after agricultural practices, uh, one of the biggest themes uh, at Resurrection in the last couple of years. Uh, you know, of course, uh, we can't avoid talking about anything in the New Testament without talking about the critique of Roman Empire. But, uh, you know, the second big religious presence in that city was there was a huge uh, cult uh, organized around the worship of Roma, who was, as we've talked about a number of times before, the kind of representative of uh, all the qualities of Rome embodied in one idol. So if you weren't rolling with the synagogue, you were likely rolling on the other side of the town, 
with uh, the Roman cult of emperor worship. And as we've talked about a number of times, that, that, uh, that relationship between the different elements of the, of the, of the city would have uh, determined what kind, who you could hang out with, what kind of access to power you had, and under what conditions uh, you could, for example, do business, etc. So this is a community in which Christianity has taken uh, early hold, and people were forced with making this tough set of choices about what it meant for them to be committed to their faith in a context where there were real and significant social consequences for you in terms of your relationship with your former religious community. Okay, now this is where this... Uh, now the, 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 whenever I do a, a series on a specific letter, the first uh, sermon is always a little more kind of abstract. I'll still dig into the text, but th- this takes a weird turn. Anyway... This letter is super theologically significant because it contains the first version of an argument and a concept which totally animates how Christians think about the church and its relationship to the world. And it's this word we still use all the time. It's this word ecclesia. You know, so we'll say something is ecclesiastical when it's related to the church. We'll say uh, you know, there's ecclesial concern. I want to hone in on that word. And basically I'm going to talk about two elements of this Thanksgiving that serve as a framework for Paul's relationship to the folks in Thessalonica. And so I want to talk about then this idea of being a member of an ecclesia, which became a hugely significant conceptual and definitional thing for Christians. And then for today specifically, I want to talk about Paul reframing what it means to belong to a community. So the object of the Christian community is different than the community we used to have. Uh, We no longer worship the emperor or worry about the traditions of, of the synagogue or temple Judaism. There's a change in terms of what the object is, but there's also a change in terms of how we commit ourselves to uh, a, a different kind of community when the object is not the synagogue or the emperor, but the object is Jesus. So that's the overarching thing that I want to dig out today and that we'll dig out through the rest of the, uh, the letter. So it'll be like the holy and sacred of Thessalonians or whatever the organizing concept is. So it's kind of, you know, it's a, I wanted to really bring the most powerful scholarly resources to bear to do this. And so I researched and researched and researched and uh, only the best sources here. Here's what Wikipedia says about the letter. Okay, so I'll quote. Most uh, New Testament scholars believe Paul the Apostle wrote this letter from Corinth. Although information appended to this work in many early manuscripts, Codex Alexandrianus, Moschinesis, and Angelicus state that Paul wrote it in Athens after Timothy had returned from Macedonia to report on the state of the church in Thessalonica. Okay, so this is where the series is going to take a little bit of a weird turn as an introduction. I want to talk for a little bit about something that I don't imagine had hit the radar in most places that were strongly committed to either a visual vision of literalism or textualism, but I want to dig in a little bit for why it is that there was a debate over where this letter was written. And I don't want to do that to solve the historical problem of where it was written, because I honestly don't care. I mean, I care, like, in some, it'd be nice to know with some certainty, but it's not the goal here. So let's talk for a little bit about the dispute over where this letter was written. I swear it has a, a good theological cash out. When we say we want to think about rhetorical choices in a letter or a document, when we look at it, we might say, why did a person use one word versus another word, or why did a person employ one narrative or structure versus another narrative or structure, the folks in the ancient world were a lot more creative than us. And one of the things that made them a lot more creative than us is that we, uh, you know, like, I I deal with this all the time, Uh, 
you know, we have this whole thing called plagiarism, where <laughs> you're supposed to properly cite where you take information from, you're supposed to properly attribute the kind of work that you do, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The ancients did not care about that. Ancient rhetorical conventions said if you really wanted to make a point, pretend like you were someone else. Because the important thing was not the authorship. The important thing was that you were making a choice about how you drove your argument by saying you were someone else. And this is, like, this is the kind of thing that makes folks very uncomfortable in many circles because of you know, all the stuff that's bound up with how Americans think about inerrancy in the contemporary evangelical church, which is a strand I identify myself with. I don't know if they'd identify me as the same, but it, it is without doubt, like it, from a scholarly perspective, there is no doubt that there are letters in the New Testament that were written by someone other than who the text claims they were written by. There's just not a question about that. And it, it, is, it is without doubt that there are le- uh, gospels that have sections that were likely added later and late enough that the person who the gospel claims wrote it uh, were not the author of those sections. And so, you know, if we have a framework for thinking about the text, it's like, well, the Bible is a book of lies then because we have modern standards for how we think about authorship. Yeah, there's a problem there. But see, in the ancient world, it wasn't the same set of conventions because in the ancient world, one of the things you do in writing a book is you might attribute what you were saying to someone else for the sake of making an argument. So the example I was thinking of in in the, in, the, uh, in the beautiful prologue to John, which to, is one of my like, favorite parts of the entirety of the scripture that was likely written significantly later than the rest of John. Oh, Trey doesn't like it. That's going to get on in the afterword. So uh, there is this, uh, there, there's this discussion about the question of, uh, 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 of why it's included. But the, for the folks who say that, jo- that the prologue to John is written much later, the basic argument was people in the church at the time were trying to figure out a fight with Gnostics. And so what they did is they kind of added some content and pegged it onto John for the sake of saying, look, uh, John himself, a reading of John himself would disqualify this. But in the, you know, in the ancient world, all the time, people would claim other authors. They'd claim other locations for writing. It's just how, kind of how they did it because ancients were less interested in getting the credit than they were in providing a picture for or an interpretation of what their stuff meant. So you know, this wasn't just a question of like amplifying your message by saying a more famous person says it. I, I wish I could trade under, tweet under Dr. Benfield to really, you know, bump up my chops if I wanted to. But in, in, in this instance, in the Bible, people were, uh, in, in ancient letter writing in general, people were writing because they were writing not for their own credit or their own vision of, you know, uh, plagiarism or not plagiarizing, but because they think that identifying authorship was an important part of saying what an argument was about. And here's the thing. They did the same thing with location. People would write that they were writing from different locations than they were really writing from all the time. Now, why? Why would you say you're writing from a different location, and especially if a source no less credible than Wikipedia itself says it? Well, I guess to ask the question, say, why does it give us a different understanding of what's going on in 1 Thessalonians to say it's written in Corinth versus it's written in Athens. Why would so many people in early manuscripts when they were circulating this want to claim that it was written in Athens? Now, if, if you say, hey, look, here's the deal. There's this, there's this a tradition that it was written in Athens instead of Corinth. If you ask the question, is that factually correct? Yeah, I mean, I, I, sure. I don't know what it gets us. But if you ask the question, 
Why is it that in the early church, people wanted to see this letter as originating in Athens? And you think about the term ecclesia, all of a sudden, something really awesome opens up. And it's this. Athens, in the ancient world, would have been thought of as the birthplace of the idea that uh, an assembly of people was the primary and uh, most important means for doing democracy, for doing life together. The ecclesia, which you know, referred at the time to people gathering together in the synagogue, and its most primary meaning would have meant members of the democratic assembly in Athens got together and they deliberated about what to do. See, this idea of ecclesia is not unlike the modern idea of public. It's an idea that comes to us and gives us a different way for thinking about how we relate to other people, for thinking about what our duties and obligations are. So ecclesia for the folks at the time, would have been a replacement for the idea of being like a subject or a servant or a person who was a, uh, a, 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 a committed to uh, or defined by a relationship with a king. Ecclesia was this really powerful idea that came from Athens that said what matters is the way that you come together in a community for articulating what it is that is common to you. Now, here's the beautiful thing. The reason why the early manuscripts want to locate First uh, Thessalonians in Athens it is at least in part because they want to make a point. And the point is that, hey, there's this whole new way of thinking about how we relate to each other and relate to authority called Ecclesia. And it had actually become an important way that people understood themselves in relationship to the synagogue and to the Roman state. But guess what? Ecclesia is more than that. Ecclesia defines the idea that a church is a new means of and a new possibility for relating to each other and relating to God. It's as if they took an idea like the people that we use in modern political times and said about the church, this is the new people. This is the new nation. This is the new organization. This is all those things. To claim that the letter is writing in Athens... (laughs) is a way of saying that Paul is trying to take something that people understood in the day as being their primary category for how they related to themselves and related to other people and related to authority. And here Paul is saying, look, this is really about rewriting the way that we understand our relationship to government, to society, to each other, to everyone else. You are the gathering. You are the ecclesia. This is the new kingdom. Now, if you think about this as being... Uh, a, a new rewrite, even if you don't kind of believe this, you know, was it in Athens and was it in Corinth and there are rhetorical reasons to say it was in Athens. It is the case that in First Thessalonians, the basic question is, what is the kingdom that you put first and how do you relate to it? So one of the beautiful things that Paul does, and this is a kind of second important rhetorical technique in ancient letter writing besides, you know, changing the place, changing who wrote it or where it was written is that in ancient letter writing, you would almost always praise a person to open a letter, but you would praise them for reasons that were strategic. You're not just saying, "Eh, these guys are great, you're the best. You're saying things that advance the point that you'd like to prove. So let's look carefully at what Paul says is the, to the benefit of, or the virtue of, this new ecclesia. This is from one, one, or two to... I guess it's uh, two to four. We always give thanks to God for all of you and mention you in our prayers. 
constantly remembering before our God and Father. And then there's these three beautiful little couplets. What are the three beautiful little couplets? We remember, we praise the work of faith, the labor of love, and steadfastness and hope. So one of the things you might think about is, if Paul is saying that what happened in Thessalonica is a new or a replacement community that becomes more important than any other kind of community affiliation, he wants to define how people relate to that community. And we think the way people relate to that community is they do the work of faith, they do the labor of love, and they are steadfast in hope. In other words, one of the things Paul's going to say throughout the letter is that it's not just that we change our vision of community to say that our community around God is the primary community. It's also that we do community differently in the context of the church. The, the beautiful and the powerful thing for Paul about Christian life and Christian practice is not only that it changes what we organize our community around, it changes how we put a community together. And so let's just think about what Paul is suggesting here about the character of this community. It turns out that what a community that is organized around Christ requires is the work of faith, the labor of love, and the steadfastness of hope. Faith, hope, and love. Heard those three before anywhere? Right? It's one of the central things early on before Paul even develops it later in Romans that he's saying, look, these are the three ingredients that make up Christian community. These are the three ingredients that make up our focus on Jesus, not only on Jesus the King, but on our relationships with each other. And here's the thing. Paul is going to say that each one of those terms, just like the term ecclesia, has a way that we'd think about it in everyday life and our normal relationship to the state. And it has a little bit more awesome, much more radical vision in the context of Christian community. So, for example, the work of faith. Now, if I were to ask the majority of folks who grew up like so many of us in the evangelical tradition, what is Paul's position on the relationship between faith and works? What would you say? Wouldn't most people just roll Ephesians immediately and be like, it's not by works, but you're saved, but by faith. faith. Faith and works have this relationship that we typically take, and Paul definitely takes to be uh, somewhat intention. And in, in fact, one of the primary ways that we might say that you know our good evangelical Protestant friends, again, whom we include ourselves alongside as a member of our community, would probably say, if it comes down to thinking about the relationship between faith and works, you should probably really, 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 really emphasize the faith part as much as you can, and you want to deny the value of the works part as much as possible, because the real danger is that you might take your work to be more important than your faith. Isn't that the way we typically think about it? Now here Paul is saying the primary thing that he wants to commend in this beautiful new Christian community in the context of Thessalonica is that they have started to work for their faith. It's a, kind of, it's a difficult thing to square with the way we typically read Paul, but here's what he says. He says, in the kingdom, faith is a kind of work. And the, work he uses, the word he uses here in Greek is ergon, which is like the word for the kind of practical stuff that you do with your hands. Paul, as we know later, is going to say there's this dicier relationship between faith and works, but in the context of this community in Thessalonica and outside of the question of justification, Paul is saying it is praiseworthy that people start with work as a means of achieving their faith. 
The same is true of labors of love. Well, I mean, think about how we normally think about a labor of love. If, what, what are you saying if you say something is a labor of love? Like people ask me somewhat consistently, do the people at Res Church get paid to do stuff? And it's, oh, no, it's a labor of love. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, typically a labor of love, as we think about it, implies that something is a passion that we throw ourselves into because we don't expect reward. In other words, typically when we say something is a labor of love, we highlight what? We highlight our choice or our agency in doing it. But that's not what Paul says about the labor of love here. It's a weird translation. The, the, the Greek here is kuru agape. Now, you know agape, unconditional love, but kuru is an interesting word. It definitely it means something like to become a slave to. It, it, it doesn't, it's not, high, slaves aren't exactly known for their ability to throw themselves into whatever they want. One of the defining characteristics of, of slavery in almost any institution is that you don't own your own means of labor, that those means of labor are directed towards some other purpose. When Paul here says that there is a labor of love, he's not just saying that people really, really, really cared about each other in the community. He's saying that people were literally willing to make themselves slaves to this concept of unconditional love, so much so that they were giving up whatever they might get out of love for the sake of making sure that they advance the position, interests, and character of other people. And then steadfastness of hope. This is a, it's a sad translation. because it, it implies like people are really sticking to their guns and engaging in hope against all hope. But the literal translation of these terms from the Greek, hupomenes elpido, means you are remaining under an expectation. That you are so certain that something is going to happen, you are acting as if it is the case even before it comes. What it means is that not only is the focus of Christian ecclesia different from all other ecclesias, not only is it Uh, much more demanding and much more significant in organizing us, but we work in it differently, we love in it differently, and we hope in it differently. Our faith, our hope, and our love are radically different from the ones that the world expects, and the thing that unites all three of them is what? Typically, we have faith for reasons that are about getting us some expectation of return. Like, we've talked about the idea of faith as probability before, like, and make a gamble, and hopefully some, something comes back. We talk about hope is, or faith is typically being uh, something is in some meaningful way uh, predictable to us, or uh, that, again, we can make a good gamble or bet that creates a benefit for us, and we do the same thing with love. A lot of the way that we think about love outside of the kingdom is that I might uh, do things that are nice or, or open myself towards someone for the sake of getting something back. That's the logic of non-Christian ecclesia, of non-Christian assemblies. It's the logic of our relationship to communities or to the state or to any number of those things. Paul's saying here that the church is a new ecclesia because instead of having faith, engaging in hope, and acting out love for the sake of what we might get back, instead we do it because we believe that in a new community the demand is not that we maximize our own interests, but instead that we die to ourselves for the sake of putting Christ at the center and for the sake of making others uh, the point of our practice, the point of our efforts. In other words, what ice is the case here for all this stuff is I think Paul is saying that uh, the Christian ecclesia, the ecclesia of the church, is a new kind of ecclesia that requires a new kind of logic. Now, why does that matter? Well, it matters because 
the new logic of the new kingdom versus the old logic of the state or the community forces us to choose. What are the most, if, if, you're, if you're a follower of American politics these days, and especially of coverage of American politics around the question of religion, you'll notice, whether it be in the citation of Romans 10 by so many folks, or Jesus' maxim that we should render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's, that there's this very difficult problem we have in thinking out the relationship between our religious practices, between our Christian practices, between our Christian community, and the broader question of what we owe to the nation and owe to each other and owe to the various groups that we belong to. And typically we resolve this problem in many ways just by saying, give unto Caesar what is Caesar and give unto God what is God's. The problem is, you know, Jesus is a pretty good rhetorician and definitely a nice trickster. If someone says to me, do you hope that Duke has a good season next year? I'm going to say, I hope Duke gets exactly what they deserve. Now, if I say that, I say it as if it's offering to someone kindness or care. But in reality, I think they deserve something a lot different. If Jesus says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and unto God what is God's, that doesn't mean that we can say, oh, Jesus is just saying that we have to do our obligations to the government, and that we need to give everything else to, uh, to the kingdom as we can. Jesus is not saying that that obligation to the government is primary in any way. In fact, this is a guy who's running around trying to establish a new kingdom that creates new demands on who we are and how we relate to the world. The radicality of the Christian message, the thing that's so powerful about it, is that it, if we are transformed, if we engage in metanoia, if our world is remade such that Jesus is the focus of it, and the kingdom is the focus of it, and we're called to love in a different way, and we're called to practice faith in a different way, and we are called to a different kind of hope, it's not so simple as to say, give one thing to one master and another thing to another master. Paul is pointing out here that if Christian community, and if if putting Christ at the center truly transforms you, then that is an all-encompassing obligation. That the focus of your life can't be on serving lots of different masters. The focus of your life is serving Christ. The focus of your life is to love, to hope, and to have faith in a different way. The focus, then, is that we ought to totally orient ourselves around the person of Jesus that we need to be transformed in terms of what we take to be our obligations and we take to be the things that are important and we need to do it in a way that forces a conflict between our various kinds of obligations, not for the sake of trying to create problems, but because if our commitment to Christ is as deep and all-abiding as it requires us to be and as it demands us to be, we're going to have a tough time fulfilling our relationship to other masters. You're asked to utterly die to yourself, to give up everything that you have, to, to do whatever you can, to, to, to give over to and to love without limit and bound to the kingdom. I don't think that that means we need to fight community or society or institutions or government, but what I do think it means is that we ought to live out our Christian life such that the entirety of our focus is advancing God's kingdom and everything else has to be measured secondarily as answering the question, how do we or do we uh, inhibit or advance the kingdom of God? That's why when Paul concludes the Thanksgiving, if you want to, you know, if you want verification that I think we're on to a good rhetorical angle here, what does he say that the people of Thessalonica did well that defined them as a new kind of community? Look at verse 9. For the people of these regions report about us 
what kind of welcome we had among you, and how, wait for it, you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, who rescues us from the wrath that is coming. That's the point of a Christian understanding of Ecclesia and of community, that we put a different object in its place instead of serving various kinds of idols, whether it be society, community, the state, whatever. Instead, it's Jesus and Jesus' kingdom. And instead of not just changing the object, we change how we love and how we participate in it. And we love and participate in it by putting our faith in, by putting our hope in, and by working in a way that brings about and points towards and expects the kingdom. There are two things worth mentioning in closing about this little run in 9 to 10 for the people report that we had a good uh, welcome. You turn God to, from God to idols and serve a living and true God to wait for a son from heaven whom he raised from the dead uh, who rescues us from the wrath that is coming. The two things that are worth noting here. When it says you serve a living and a true God, the notion of service there is not like, like when we think about service, it's like a, I don't know, like kids go to school and they have a, a, a community service requirement. And service is like, I'm going to go do a couple of hours. You know, I might go to Rise Against Hunger and, and pass out some food. That fulfills my obligation for service. Service is understood to be a small thing. The word Paul uses there is the, this kind of word, again, that refers to the work of slavery. That service here is not just about doing little things to give back to other people. It's that we have committed ourselves to serving God in the same way that folks at the time would have thought about the relationship between a slave or a servant uh, who was bonded and a master. That's the praise of the kingdom, is that these folks had that kind of mindset that said they belonged to and they were defined by their relationship to this new ecclesia, and therefore their focus was not on serving other masters, their focus was on serving the master. And here's the second thing. This is a really beautiful little piece of of grammar and or rhetoric here. It says that uh, that... Uh, the new, in that new community, we have faith, hope, and we love a God who uh, has the Son and we raised from the dead. And the English translation here is who rescues us from the wrath that is coming. Now, here's the beautiful thing. The uh, verb for who rescues us is a present tense verb. In other words, it is Jesus who is rescuing us now. And then the word for wrath is in the, in the, in the future, the wrath that is coming. How could it be that Jesus rescues us now from wrath and or consequences which are coming in the distant future? It's a weird thing to say. How do you rescue someone from something that hasn't even begun to happen yet? But that, that, that's the point that Paul is making about the nature of commitment to the kingdom, I think. I think that the reason he is praising people is Paul is saying in a, in a, in a, in a fairly fancy way, look, uh, if you continue to focus on, and you continue to live out your faith, you are going to live out your faith in ways that put you in conflict with the synagogue and your old friends there who are kind of mad about you picking a a new shtick. 
and you're going to be uh, in significant tension with your friends who, uh, you know, worship in the Roman idol cult. And you're going to, you know, I, I mean, the, you know, whether or not there was the uh, amount of, uh, of uh, persecution that folks normally ascribe here, I think what Paul is uh, uh, definitely speaking to is this question of whether or not there is persecution in the sense of uh, the, the way folks talk about masses being put to death and fighting lions and all that, that to live out this life will put you in real conflict with real people uh, in your existing community, in your existing uh, a city, in your state, in your nation, that we cannot live out Christian ecclesia without in some ways being at cross purposes from all the other demands and other obligations that we have. It's going to happen, and there's going to be a consequence. So what is it that Jesus does that saves us from this? Not even from the consequences, but from the wrath? The beautiful thing I think Paul is saying was that when we reorient our sense of community towards Jesus and towards the kingdom, it's not that we don't experience as consequences about that. It's that the consequences don't matter in the same way. Because we're given a new community, organized around new values. And when we experience the potential of being in difficulty with other people who do not think the same way as us, instead of saying, oh my gosh, this is a crushing sense of victimhood. I can't believe that someone doesn't respect the coffee cup I want to drink at Christmas or uh, won't use the, uh, the, the words for my holiday that I want them to use. That's being really awfully worried about the implications in another community which is not the Christian ecclesia. If you smell what Paul is cooking here, the whole point is you shouldn't be worried about what other folks are saying are doing because you have a new community with a new focus organized around new values. And if you take seriously that new community with new focus around new values, you don't have to be completely upset about when other people in your existing community aren't entirely happy with what you're doing because it's not about pleasing them. It's not about helping them to be more comfortable with the choices that you make. It's because when we focus on Jesus and who Jesus is and what Jesus asks us to do, the consequences of social retribution don't seem as severe because we don't care as much because we believe that what matters is that we love God, love each other, and therefore love our neighbor. So you have to choose. And that you have to decide where to put your, uh, your emphasis and your primary point of focus. But that the, the, the thing that Paul asks us to do and that he praises in Thessalonica is that those folks got that it was a new community and the power of the new community dissolved just a little bit of the bonds of the old community so that we might live fundamentally differently. That's the call for us to be a member of a new community with a new focus and that is uh, lived out in a new way. That's the theme we're going to do in the rest of this uh, chapter.